Live from the Haymarket Pub and Brewery, this is Bug House. The following podcast was recorded live on March 5th, 2018. The contestants were Holly Boudry, Susan Harmon, J.W. Basillo, Don Hall, Holly Yukovic, and Emily Mason. world where we have lost the ability to persuade one another. If you look at any news, you look at any social media, you look at anything that we're doing right now, what passes for political discourse is screaming at each other and shaming each other for being morally wrong, depending on what you've decided was morally wrong. And so we've lost that ability to actually try to persuade people to come to our side of the issue. Yeah. Well, David and I decided that that wasn't cool. And so Literate Ape decided to go back in time, back to the beginning of the last century, 1911 specifically, Washington Square Park in Chicago. It was a very contentious time politically. Lots of screaming, so to speak. Um, Although they didn't have Facebook, so they were invariably much better off than we are. Um, But what happened, Washington Square Park was dubbed Bughouse Square, which is a pejorative for a mental hospital, but that was mainly because it was filled with crazy people, with radicals, with communists, with left thinkers, with free thinkers. They would get up on soapboxes every weekend and they would debate the issues of the day. This is Bughouse! people seen Office Space? Okay, if you haven't seen Office Space, you've gone to a TJI Fridays, and you understand the concept of flair. Flair is more buttons, more friendly emotional labor that people have to put on to make sure that they are, are presenting a high morale in there. And the question that we will be debating is corporate culture, do we really need more flair? Holly Butcher, give her a hand. I miss the corporate f- flair part of that. Uh, so I was uh, basing it on flair, like faux fur flair. So go with me. Okay. This is already going really well. Um, do we really need more flair? How is this a question? Of course you need a bit more flair. By flair, I mean charm, panaz, pizzazz, style. Something that is exciting. Yes, more flair, please, because more flair means more fun. And couldn't we all use a little bit more fun these days? Between natural disasters, school shootings, immigration, Trump, I need more sequins, smiley buttons, and little top hats on dogs, because I want to escape. Last weekend, I went to a, a birthday party but not just any party. It was a Studio 54 themed birthday party. I was surrounded by Afro wigs, bell bottoms, faux fur, flair. And just for a couple hours, I forgot about the work I still needed to do, the bills I had to pay, 
and those 10 pounds I was struggling to lose. For a couple hours, I was a disco queen named Brenda. Flair is powerful. <laughs> Do you know TGI Friday's band Flair? This is tragic, because that's what made them special. Now they're just another Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs> Burn. I get it. Not a lot of people are comfortable with flair. I was actually born into it. My mother was into flair. Her mother's mother was into flair. Flair. It is a skill or instinctive ability to appreciate or make good use of something. My grandma was a very talented seamstress, and she would always be able to show her talent around my favorite holiday, Halloween. You see, my household, we took Halloween very seriously, and there was no such thing as a store-bought costume. No, everything was made from scratch. I remember one Halloween in particular, I was nine years old, and all my friends were fairies and witches. Basic. <laughs> and I, I was a Christmas tree. Ah, oh, a sight for sore eyes. Beautiful green tulle, tinsel, ornaments hanging from every branch, and a gorgeous star on the top of my head. Flare. My friends were just giggling and laughing from what I could tell. I was pretty far back from the rest of the group, just yelling, hey guys, hold up, I can't run, the ornaments are falling off. Flare is not always easy, but it is always fun. Flare. A uniquely attractive quality. When I was a little girl, I was extremely shy. So Flair actually gave me a way to express myself. In fourth grade, my school was having a talent show, and I just knew that it would be my chance to be seen. I decided to do a solo dance to Michael Jackson's song, Bad, because I wanted to be a badass. Bad to the bone. A bad habit you can't break. The opposite of good. Bad. Uh, I knew going into it I was not the most talented dancer, so it would need to bring some major pizzazz. I wore a tight zebra print jumpsuit with a matching bandana. Bad starts playing and I start off the dance number with a backwards tumble song. What? Yeah, that's what we call flair. <laughs> I tore it up. I tore up the stage. Next thing you know, everyone's on their feet chanting, go Holly, go Holly, go, go, go Holly. It was like a Lifetime movie of the week. The underdog wins! I mean, that's exactly not quite what happened. I actually, I didn't win. Uh, no, Sarah won the talent show with her can-can dance. I mean, it's a classic. It's called the can-can, because anyone can-can do it. Let it go, Holly, let it go. Okay, so I didn't win with my flair, but I did find my voice and made new friends and that's a win in my book. So could we use a little bit more flair? Why not? Who does it hurt? If wearing a feather boa, a sequin beret, a huge wig, a gold jumpsuit, I'm just naming things in my closet, if any of those things make you feel special, put a smile on your face, help you find some joy in this fucked up world, then yes, I say more flair. I will end my piece in the words of the great WWE champion, Ric Flair. <laughs> I'm Ric Flair, ooh! The styling, profiling, limousine riding, jet flying, kiss stealing, wheeling and dealing, son of a gun! Yeah. Flair.
Audrey. Give her a hand. Lily, now process your now your belief in flair. Ladies and gentlemen, Susan Harmon. Friends, I stand before you today to tell you a truth that I know we all might find harsh and difficult, but yet absolutely true when we listen to it. Corporate flair and anyone who tells you what you need to put on your body to make you fancy enough is the corporate equivalent of a man telling a woman to smile. So friends, why? Why would we give in to this impulse? If nothing else, corporate flair is actually just simply an attempt to shove down, right? To suppress all the emotional labor that we need to do, especially folks who have been in the service industry. Who here has waited tables? There we go, right? We all know what that is. And I would argue, especially in the case of waiting tables, flair or a clean t-shirt or a non-must ponytail more than just a suppression of who you truly are, who you actually feel about the person that you're about to have to have a forced interaction with. If anything, this blurs the line in a way that is unsafe for both the consumer and the server. When Marge walks up to your table with a stained apron, with five pencils sticking out of a ponytail, with mascara that is smudged in a direction that you know is truly unnatural, and that look on her face that says she is just half a centimeter away from picking up the coffee pot and straight out of Eastern Promises, smashing it across someone's forehead, you know that your request to really make sure that the peanut butter on the pad thai has been substituted for cashew butter because of a food allergy. That's bullshit. We all know it's just a preference. <laughs> that that is a line that you should not cross. Nay, you dare not cross. Because when Marge, standing before you in all her overworked glory, gives you this clear sense of where she stands with you and the world and everything else with fate before you, you backpedal it up a little bit. You say, no, no, this is fine. But if Marge was covered in flair, if that apron was clean, if that ponytail was precise, if that eyeliner was just a thin and moderate and modest line, you wouldn't know. You'd send that dish back and you would have it returned to you covered in visine. <laughs> Corporate flair blurs the lines that gives us a sense of where good decency begins and ends, right? It is a danger to all of us and something that shouldn't happen. If anything, it shoves down authenticity. It supposedly claims to us, no, no, flares away for you to express yourself, for you to share with the world all the wonderful things that you believe in. But friends, the Oscars were last night. And if I saw yet another streaming end of folks wearing Time's Up pins to then watch Kobe Bryant win an Oscar. And Gary Oldman, who while he may be an excellent actor, did indeed beat his own wife with the phone that she attempted to use to call the authorities about the domestic dispute. So for me, seeing Gary Oldman sport a pin around Time's Up seems perhaps a bit disingenuous. Yet again, Flair inviting us to a place of authenticity that is perhaps not as accurate 
accurate as we would think it would be. But on the other side of this false advertising, oh friends, there is a dark, dark place that none of us want to go when we're actually finding out about what someone believes in. Do you really want to know if your dry cleaner listens to fish? Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But at the end of the day, think about all the Ubers you've taken. And my dear, sweet, presumably mostly straight audience, you've probably never thought about that. You've probably never done the walk around behind the back of the Uber to check to see which bumper stickers are on there so that you can actually validate whether you want to pretend that this is indeed your Uber or not. Because a quick eyeball of a bumper sticker that says, when the rapture comes, this car will be unattended, or a Trump pump Pence bumper sticker, or there was no Adam and Steve in the Garden of Eden, will let you know that perhaps this might not be the vehicle from whence you would like to convey yourself from point A to point B. And the sad thing is, perhaps the lovingly religious bigot sitting behind that wheel knows that queer money spends just as well as straight money. Perhaps he would spend the next 20 minutes of the time conveying me from my Rogers Park apartment to some, you know, mildly inappropriately priced bar somewhere in the rest of the town in a sweet, silent, and like perfectly lovely capitalistic malaise, right? He wants my money. He doesn't care who I make out with, but his flair has told me exactly how few human rights I can receive from him. Is that fair to him? Is that fair to me? At the end of the day, we both wish he hadn't put shit on the back of his car, right? So I hold to you, friends, with less flair, perhaps we walk into a world that is more humane, more decent, more able for introverts like me who don't give a fuck what you think until I have established an emotional relationship with you, a way to move through. But if nothing else, let me please demonstrate the effect that flair has upon the world. Start thinking your, your favorite phrase in the entire world. Friends, I stand before you covered in flair, right? Is this indeed a better reality than we had before? I am advertising Simple Plan, which although it was a delightful, delightful guilty pleasure, we all know we shouldn't have bought that album. I have the words, time to lean, time to clean. This is what flair has done to us, friends. This is the reality at which we stand before ourselves if we lean into flair. And although my compatriot and feller uh, counterlocutor up here made an incredible and wonderful avocation and argument for decorating yourself and expressing yourself, I would say, is that flair? Or is it truly just a manifestation of the badassery that all of us have within us? Because when I look upon this crowd, I see a bunch of damn fine looking people. None of us need flair to cover up our own beauty and excellence and downright attractiveness. So at the end of the day, say no to flair and say yes to your own hotness. Lily, to flare or not to flare? I will have to go and speak.
You're gonna go with no flair. All right, Susan Harmon wins, give her a hand. Thank you, Holly. Stop. Frat boys in blackface and sorority girls wearing, you know, sombreros and, and, and you know, just constant. And it goes back to Elvis Presley and even beyond. Cultural appropriation is everywhere. Now, the question that we will be debating is, is cultural appropriation an insult to culture or a compliment? All right, let's start by defining a few things, okay? Appropriation is to take something for one's own use, typically without the owner's permission. The concept of cultural appropriation concerns the adoption of the elements of a minority culture by members of the dominant culture. Its opposite is known as cultural appreciation. It is only distinct from appropriation in that it honors the source the elements came from. Pretty much from the get-go, language mucks things up. Who owns culture? If I decide to appropriate a style of music or painting, whose permission do I seek in order to avoid appropriating it? In the hodgepodge mixing up of everything from fashion to art to language, cultural property is easy to, to define, but cultural elements are impossible to narrow down to one person or even one group. When I was in seventh grade, I was, as is, was the case every year, the new kid. We moved around a lot. Starting from scratch every year since kindergarten created a bit of a routine. I'd spy the coolest kid in the new group, appropriate a few items of fashion, and try to blend in. In seventh grade, it was Darnell. Darnell was cool in that 1979 coolest kid in school way. He would wear this brown leather jacket and these puffy pants. He wore Converse All-Stars, so I begged my mom for some Converse and a leather jacket. The shoes were easy. The jacket mom could afford was pretty beaten up. I recall the armpits were ripped out, exposing the lining, but I wore them every single day. I was borrowing from him, appropriating his look, using the elements of actually a majority culture, because that school was heavily African-American, for my own use, but without his permission. But was it an insult to Darnell or a demonstration of appreciation? Or did I just think he was cool and wanted to emulate him? Last year, artist Dana Schutz presented a painting at the Whitney Museum called Open Casket. The painting depicted the body of Emmett Till, whose 1955 lynching helped galvanize the civil rights movement. Immediately, cries of cultural appropriation went viral with a petition calling for the painting to be removed and destroyed on the grounds that a white woman has no right to paint this specific moment in time. Now, while far from a compliment, the painting, independent of the cultural heritage of its creator, is a reminder of Till, and the horrifying moment in time depicted is necessary for the mostly white Whitney audience to see. The insult lies more in the attempt of institutionalized racism to cover moments like these up, hiding them from history. A few more examples. After the 2013 American Music Awards, Katy Perry was criticized for dressing like a geisha while performing her hit single, Unconditionally. 
Last year, Arab-American writer Rhonda Jarrar accused Caucasian women who practice belly dancing of white appropriation of Eastern dance. Daily Beast entertainment writer Amy Zimmerman wrote that pop star Iggy Azalea perpetuated cultural crimes by imitating African-American rap styles. And this summer, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston has been dogged by charges of cultural insensitivity and racism for its Kimono Wednesdays. At the event, visitors were invited to try on a replica of the kimono worn by Claude Monet's wife, Camille, in the painting La Japonaise. The historically accurate kimonos were made and purchased in Japan for this very purpose. Still, Asian American activists and their supporters besieged the exhibit with signs like, try on the kimono, learn what it's like to be a racist imperialist today. Others railed against Yellowface at the MFA on Facebook. The museum eventually apologized and changed the program so that the kimonos were available for viewing only. Still, activists complained that the display invited a creepy orientalist gaze. The school in seventh grade had mostly African-American population, so in the context of junior high being the entire world from a 13-year-old's perspective, I was in the minority culture. Darnell never noticed me. He didn't care, except for one time in the hallway when he noticed my shows, shoes, snapped his fingers, and said, cool sneaks. Once we moved to Benton, Kansas, I was again a new kid in eighth grade. I was suddenly in the least diverse school I had ever been in with only four kids of color in the whole place. Darren Lydell was the cool kid. He wore a trucker cap and white painter's pants. Soon, I was wearing the same. Appropriation for certain, as I didn't ask for his permission, but again, I felt like I was borrowing from a dominant culture as I was not of the shit kicker variety. We aren't in the late 1970s anymore, and with an increase in globalization, the borrowing of cultural staples is unavoidable. As we engage more and more with different cultures, like the English language, parsing out that the, the French own the terms cafe, menu, menagetois, crosses over to becoming sort of like pedantic assholes. Who owns cornrows? Who owns tacos? And given that the Chinese and Saudi governments own about 60% of our country right now, don't we need permission to pretty much do anything from them anyway? Cultural appropriation is no more an insult than drawing in the style of anime or wearing Converse All-Stars because the kid, cool kid wears them. Like all things, these are definitely, there are definitely a few ways, though, to be more sensitive to those who are more offended by this particular practice. One... Blackface is never okay. If you can't understand the difference between borrowing culture and using shitty stereotyping for a party, maybe just let the adults play at the cultural stuff and you stay the fuck at home, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Two, borrow but give credit, especially if you're in a position to have your turquoise fringe vest with Native American beads on, on it seen by a lot of people. I mean, you don't have to wear a sign around your chest, but be ready to give credit where credit is due. Three, leave sacred artifacts alone. Yeah, it's arguable that Beyonce is, in fact, a sacred figure. <laughs> But there are plenty of completely unambiguous religious symbols that maybe you should avoid using as a tattoo. Just thinking. Four, remember that culture is 
and has always been fluid. There's a bigger picture at play here than the individual moment. In the march of globalization in business, in politics, in fashion, in film, it's not going to slow down anytime soon. This mixing and fluidity is a part of what we have to contend with. Five, appropriation is still not a substitute for diversity. Your embrace of the whiz at the local high school is spectacular. Your casting mostly white kids in it is not. I actually saw that, a junior high production of The Wiz at a Jewish junior high, and every child in the play, musical, was white. It was an out-of-body experience. Six, don't cherry-pick, immerse. Culture is fun, but the people whose culture you're toe-dipping into are more fun. Borrow the culture, but get to know the people. It's about sharing, and you don't share with people you wouldn't eat a meal with. Seven, remember this is less about culture and more about economics. I mean, I know it wants to sound like a moral high ground argument, but it's really about money, because no one complains about cultural appropriation when the money is shared. If you appropriate and make it a commercial thing, share the profits, be no different than any other greedy asshole in America. Is there insulting appropriation of cultural elements? Of course there are. That doesn't make the practice of borrowing them inherently insulting, regardless of what the hard left would make you believe or best. Just to muddy things up just a bit more. Johnny Otis, known as the godfather of R&B in the 1950s, known as well as a light-skinned black man was actually Ioannis Alexandris Vilotis and was Greek. He grew up in a black neighborhood where he developed such a kinship with black culture that he walked away from his whiteness and became black by choice. Quote, as a kid I decided that if our society dictated that one had to be black or white, I would be black, he wrote in his 1968 book, Listen to the Lambs, former President Barack Obama. The nation's first black president doesn't really fit the conventional definition of his black. His father was from Kenya and East Africa, and his mother was white from Kansas. At one point, some in the black community said Obama wasn't really black since he wasn't a descendant of slaves from West Africa. Well, not anymore. Obama said he chose his African-American identity in part because of how he's perceived and because, and I quote, our former president, he chose to be black because black was cool. Oh, here, oh, I'm gonna say her name. I'm gonna say her name, Bess. I'm gonna say her name, Rachel Dolezal. Hated being white so much, she hated it so much that she decided to pretend she was black and then the gall spend the rest of her life working hard for the rights of black people. Maybe a bit shifty and ill-conceived, but it sounds like a compliment to me. Thank you. Wow. And now for the flip side, J.W. DeSilva. Oh, boy. Sometimes it's innocuous enough, like your mom hanging a dream catcher in her crafting room. But sometimes it's taking a song from a struggling black artist, giving it to a white artist and making it palatable and then making millions of dollars off the single. 
Sometimes it's a shamrock painted on your cheek. Sometimes it's a pimps and hose ball at a frat party. Well-meaning white people in dreadlocks. God bless them. Or Rachel Dolezal. <laughs> A Trump Tower taco salad. Sometimes it's a white kid in gold chains and his Camry his dad bought him pulling up to the mall yelling, What's up, my no, 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 Brandon, no. Unless you want the systemic profiling and astronomically higher rates of police brutality that goes with this little game of dress up you're playing, cut the shit and fast. Because that's what we're talking about. Cultural appropriation is colloquially just taking something interesting, embedding in, embedded in someone else's culture, and then wearing it around like a festive hat for your amusement without any regard for the culture whence it came. The fuckery can also skew into the nefarious, into the cartoonization of actual human beings. Appropriation has many faces, but almost all of them are white. Whiteness so pervasive in American culture that it is the literal norm, the zero point. The everything else is the other. Everything else is an Epcot Center ride, an ethnic food aisle. An act of appropriating demonstrates an ethnocentric lack of awareness and respect, even when you think it's a compliment. Don't think it's insulting. As soon as mainstream white American people take an interest in an aspect of a non-white culture, the actual people of that culture get together and go, fuck, I guess this is over. <laughs> Meanwhile, your Uncle Jerry is still raising the roof at the barbecue. I grew up predominantly on black American music. I loved the rhythm and the tonics and the way it just seemed to fucking matter. I dreamed of, dreamed of one day becoming a blues musician. And in my teens, I would stay up late at night watching a B.B. King documentary I taped on PBS, a guitar in my lap, just trying to get the licks right. I hung pictures of Muddy Waters and Big Mama Thornton in my bedroom. I waited patiently for the dial-up internet to connect so I could do research, so I could truly learn and understand the art form. And finally, I got old enough to catch the bus to blues shows by myself, and I looked around, and every motherfucker there was like 50 years old and wearing jean shorts and white and wearing an I Heart the Blues t-shirt. And I was annoyed. It was like a Russian nesting doll of fucked up. It was like gay white circus circuit queens lifting the catchphrases of young black women and rolling their eyes when straight white women started saying, yes. <laughs> <laughs> But I do understand it because, like, the Cathy's of accounting of the world is just the elephant graveyard of cool. I get it. But I stood there, incensed that these old white dudes were ripping off the music that I was there to rip off, mostly. And they all just seemed so lame, so antithetical to cool. And it dawned on me that this music didn't belong to me. The fuck did I have to be blue about? I loved the music largely because it wasn't mine, and that, in part, made it cool to me. But you don't just get to borrow the parts of people for fun and then completely disregard the rest. You can't play a Robert Johnson record in your car while casually locking the door in a black neighborhood. You don't get to walk into your favorite taco spot and ask that they turn the bachata down. You don't get to send text with the white hand emojis for emphasis and then get mad when a bunch of young black women actually get on the fucking train and maybe use that sense of, okay. <laughs> You don't get to text you up to someone at 2 a.m. 
every time you're drunk and feeling insecure and proceed to ram your sad crumpled meat hammer into him and then only because you know now we get to turn into a ghost and pretend that your ringer's off when their car breaks down that's a dick move pun acknowledged i didn't even know you had a car it's not my fault your car broke down maybe if you took some responsibility for your car it wouldn't be breaking down unexpectedly you ever think of that why is everyone blaming us it's a dick move and I'm not upset that Don Hall is making me publicly rant like a college student. <laughs> I'm not upset that his examples were both limp and ineffective. I'm not upset that I'm forced to argue a position that like three bajillion BuzzFeed articles already tackled with greater aplomb this week. I'm upset that somehow this argument still remains relevant. <laughs> A couple months from now, the streets of Lakeview will be littered with overgrown children who left their Asian-inspired condos and kanji-printed <laughs> bath candles in order to rock serapes and fake mustaches on Cinco de Mayo. You're goddamn right tacos are awesome, Taylor, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying them until you turn millions of people into a singular fucking cartoon that doesn't even resemble one of them. You won't hire someone with a black-sounding name, but you sprain your wrist applauding when Myrie Cyrus or whoever the hell rocks cornrows and a gold grill for a month until she gets bored and then moves on, and then you're gonna say she invented twerking. <laughs> Two years ago, my aunt showed up at Thanksgiving, which is the ultimate cultural appropriated holiday. <laughs> She showed up in a braided Pocahontas wing, wing, wig, and lipstick on her face representing war paint without a hint of irony. This is my own family. We're Italians, you know, Italians, good fellas, and mamma mia, and that's a good show, and hey, it's me, Mario, okie dokie. <laughs> In, my er in the early aughts, when The Sopranos was popular, I couldn't mention my family without someone saying, hey, forget about it. How about you uh, forget about me ever not thinking you're a fucking dipshit? But I can't get mad because Italians are white now. We made it. We used to be five-eighths white on the census, but not anymore. All we had to do was change our names and drop most of the vowels and then just wait for pizza to make it. <laughs> Mission accomplished indeed. And I don't have time to take apart the fashionable pockets of Guido chic. People clinging to some sense of culture that they create an amplified caricature of themselves, doing a marinara minstrel show, reflecting back what the mainstream believes them to be in the first place. I wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened if we weren't so desperate to assimilate in the first place. Italians and Irish, and pick one, can be American, but the Italians can only be American if we're greased up and tracksuited, running book and grunting, but ain't we just a melting pot? To be American is to be the winner, to fight imperialism by becoming the imperial, to land and conquer and take what pieces you want and call it freedom and overthrow the monarchy and call it freedom and own human beings and call it freedom and invade other countries and call it defending freedom. What's the big deal? I don't understand what everyone's so upset about. You lose your mind when someone from Downers Grove claims to be from Chicago. <laughs> so don't be so obtuse 
When groups of people who have systemically been mashed into the turf, ridiculed, murdered, treated as less than, called rapists and shithole dwellers, and told back to go, told to go back to their own country and stay in their own neighborhoods and made into property and denied medical treatment and not been allowed to marry, just say, can you keep your hands off our shit? Can we just have something in this country that isn't up for grabs? Thanks. All right. All right, Lily, you've heard the arguments. Is it an insult or a compliment? And I'm sorry I can't read, Lily. It's, it's all right. Yeah, I think I'm going to number two again. All right. J.W. Vasillo wins tonight. billion plus people on this planet. The planet is already beyond its ability to sustain this number of people. The question becomes, given that we are mammals and that part of our hierarchy, part of our instinct is to constantly procreate, the question is procreation, do we really need more babies? Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, Emily Mason. Now filled with regret for going first, which is fine. Well, literate, uh, literate apes, oh, David Himmel is about to have a baby. I for one am thrilled because we need more babies. I beg your pardon, I believe it's pronounced yabies. Population growth, it's down. I'm meaning that there aren't enough babies. This is a travesty. We, the public, should be concerned. Think about what this means. And I mean, yeah, cultural collapse and infrastructure destabilization and all of that. But what's really at stake here? Cuteness. <laughs> when was the last time any of us really stopped to appreciate the fact that babies are so cute? They're all soft and they're squishy and it seems like their eyes take up half of their face. They're like living anime characters, which is just so cool. Who doesn't love that? Am I, it's not just me, is it? It can't be me. Anyway, but aside from the cuteness, there are other good things. I mean societies that have sustained population of little babies cute cute babies have greater longevity. Parents have babies, parents take care of those babies, but parents also, because of the babies, they take care of themselves. They take care of their environments. They take care of everything. They take steps to ensure that there's a legacy for their children. Not just their own family legacy, but a cultural legacy, their country's legacy, history, folklore, language, music. All of these things can be fostered in generations to come because of the parents, because the parents have cute, cute babies. And if there are no more babies, culture as we know it ceases to exist. And one by one, the world's great and not half bad societies join thousands, thousands of extinct cultures and languages on thousands of cultures that are extinct. And mind you, these are just the ones that we've found out about and know about already. Just let that sink in for a second. We need to be careful. We need to have babies, QQ babies. Because if we don't, we could very well become the next Olmecs, the next Minoans, the next Valley Girls. Great societies, all forgotten by everyone 
but the super nerd. And yes, I know what you're thinking. Use cute babies to preserve society. Look at society, it's a mess. Fair point. But society has been a mess before. Ask anyone in say 1942, anywhere on the planet or in say the bug house in 1911. They probably didn't think anything was hunky-dory. You'd probably hear something along the lines of, we're a mess, save us. Oh wow, look how cute that baby is. I feel better now, but we're still a mess. Yeah, we are a mess, but it is normal for any culture, any society, to go through peaks and valleys. We'll call the chaos and mass hysteria of the present a valley, maybe crevasse is better, it, perhaps it's a deep sea trench, but the, for argument's sake, it's a valley. It's not great, but you know what can help us recover from this particular deep sea trench? Cute, cute babies. Creating a new generation allows society to recover from the low points and evolve, reach new heights that were previously thought to be unattainable. The internet, I mean peak, the discovery of DNA, peak. The clapper, you know, clap on, clap off. I mean, I think that was a peak. I can't be alone there. These are all things that we take for granted now. And up to the moment that they actually happened, these things were unfathomable. And without babies, they would never have happened. Society would have ground to a screeching halt. Why, do you ask? Well, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but cute babies turn into grown-ups. Like, I used to be a baby. And barring some kind of body snatcher scenario, the odds of which are one in, what, three, four, something like that? Yeah, odds are that everyone in this room was once a baby, too. Babies eventually become contributing members of the societies that they rescue from extinction. Yay! And I know what you're thinking. Yeah, I used to be a baby. Now I'm a grown-up. So what? I'm out of shape. I'm filled with self-loathing. There's some debt thrown in there, you know? Yeah, you, I mean, we're all thinking that. It's definitely not just me. Anyway. Oh, and also there's that definitely not stupid or tired argument. But Hitler was a baby once. <laughs> yes, terrible people were babies once. Mediocre people were also babies once. But by that logic, you could also say amazing people were babies once. For example, let's say Malala, she was a baby once. For those of you who don't know who that is, your adults read something. Anyway, <laughs> Malala. Malala Yousafzai, she's a Pakistani activist, oldest of three children, the only girl in her family, started speaking in public about 10 years ago advocating for equal access to education. She was 11 at the time. When she was 15, she survived an assassination attempt by the Taliban who deemed her a dangerous influence at 15. Now 20, she is a student at Oxford. She enjoys sleight of hand magic, Oh, and one more thing. She's the youngest recipient of the Nobel Prize. There's way more about Mwala, but my, my self-esteem can't take it. So um, she's an extraordinary person, one in billions, literally. And there is no explanation for why she is so incredible. And I know what you're thinking. Good parenting. Yeah, maybe. Her parents are fierce advocates. That's documented. And they are for all of their children. But. My parents were the same way, and I'm here talking to you guys. <laughs> I mean, having par great parents 
is an incredible asset. But that doesn't set you up for greatness. And there's nothing unusual about these chef-sized choices as parents that would account for their daughter becoming a global, global phenomenon. That is all her. And Malala's influence illustrates an important point. Greatness really can come from anywhere. And yes, the flip side of that is that not-so-greatness can come from anywhere. But that's why we need more babies, cute, cute babies, because every new baby is just a universe of opportunity and just an opportunity for cute, squishy, adorable greatness. I mean, I really can't overstate the cuteness here, the little squishy anime face cuteness, because babies, they're just so cute. We need more cute. So what are we waiting for? Everybody go, go home. We need go forth, increase the cuteness, increase the cultural survival, add more great people maybe to the world. And it all starts with Yabies. Yeah! Emily Mason, ladies and gentlemen. So David, I hope you're feeling like really empowered and good about the fact I'm not sold yet. That your ba your wife is about to just drop trow and like she's gonna drop a whole lot of trow. Well that's what I'm saying. We've been talking about this for months. Yeah. So uh, so now here's the counterpoint. Polly Yukovic, give her Dave, I mean, we shook hands. I express my condolences. I'm so sorry. Me too. Fuck Malala. Whatever. If she never existed, we'd never know how great she was. And honestly, if you never saw me tonight, you'd never know that I was the best person you'd ever met. Right? Um, but, I mean, yes, babies are cute. I get it. Cats are also cute, but they die after like seven, 15, whatever fucking years they are, right? <laughs> and old people, goddamn, have you ever seen Up? <laughs> that shit is amazing. I cry every time. I listen to the music and mm, that music is good. <laughs> that being said, being a parent or like bringing a child out of your loins, is ultimately really narcissistic, okay? I like myself, I like this body, all right? It's amazing, but fuck, what, what are you thinking? Do you really need another Donald Trump? I know, silence, okay? Um, growing up as a child, I'm a woman, no one can see this because I imagine it's on just recording, just audio. You're not seeing the amazingness of me. Um, anyway, but I played with Barbies. I have these really vivid memories of playing with Barbies and Kendall. And then also like these very vivid memories of like, like how do these things come to be? What is it that makes these babies, right? Um, but ultimately, it's so empowering to change a diaper. I'm looking at all of you right? There's nothing more empowering for me as a human to change a diaper, but it's biological, right? I'm in my 30s, and every day with my husband, I walk around the street, and I see a baby, and like something in my tits calls out to a child. <laughs> I say this for many reasons, which you can ask me about over a drink later, but um, like there's something that is, is just natural about wanting to have a child, and I totally get that. 
Um, but also, there's really something wrong with wanting to have a child if you really look at it from a very ethical and moral standpoint. Um, but truly, having a kid is a strange idea. I know all of you. I'm looking at every single one of you. You like to fuck, all right? <laughs> There's a reason that it feels good. We like it, okay? So it feels great. You're like, oh, I want to keep doing this, but God damn it, I hope you're using protection. Because there is a moral imperative to what you're doing. I've been studying philosophy. I'm trying to get this PhD. It's a dumb idea also. <laughs> but like, when you're studying this, you have to think about the implications of your thoughts and your actions in this world. And for me, as a Catholic, um, every time that a penis is inside me, I feel guilty. I get that, okay? Um, but like, it makes a baby too, and I have to remember that. So, um, moving on, I think I'd be a really good mom. <laughs> I spent now over a decade cultivating the young minds of children in schools. And I'm sure every parent of the child that I've ever taught has been, would be really proud to listen to this. Um, but like, Ultimately, their parents don't give a fuck, and I did. So why should I keep cultivating the minds of these babies who are flooded in my classroom? Um, I don't know, do we really need them in this universe? I mean, what was Dave Himmel thinking when he's, like, when that happened? I don't know, like, ugh. Oh shit, that's probably what he was thinking, in my opinion. All right, um, moving on, I would, I would come to my philosophical backgrounds of the last couple years of citing people when I speak, because my words are apparently not valid, but everybody else who got published, they're valid. Um, there are a lot of philosophers out there who have spoken about whether it's moral or immoral to have children. And I've got to tell you, there's a weird biological like draw for me to be like, I want to have a baby. I think I'd be good at it. Um, but beyond that, I have to step back and say to myself, is it really okay for me to have a child? Whether I would be a good mom or whether this child would be the next Martin Luther King, I was born on Martin Luther King's birthday, so probably my child is meant to be the next Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I don't know if it's moral to have kids. You guys have to think about this. Like, we have to think about the fact, sure, whatever the fuck Huffington Post is saying about the environmental impact of children. We can talk about it for days, but ultimately I don't care about that. I love meat and I'm gonna keep eating cows. And so me and the children are going to keep making this world be fucked up. But you have to think about why are you having a child? What is the reason? All right? They smell good? Yes. All right? They're fun to hold and they make you feel nice when you're holding them. But I think in the end, all right, we have to acknowledge that our actions have consequences. That in making the choice to have a child, I have to have a reason. And what is the moral or ethical reason that I want to have a child? Um, I don't think that the, by the way, I just want to, an aside from this thought, 
I don't think the majority of people who have children are thinking about what it means to have a child. I think they're fucking and then a baby comes out and they're like, shit, fuck. I don't know what to do with this. All right? And, and, and hopefully they raise like a child that contributes to our society, but ultimately in the end, they add a child to our society, society who suffers, who has a really shitty fucking life, whose dad is a crack addict, or who's like, entire experience in schools is awful and demeaning, or who dies at the age of five from fucking cancer. No, but it's fucking true. People die, and a lot of them are children. And you have to think about when you burst that goddamn shit from your loins, and it rips some shit and nobody ever wants to fuck you again. That means something. Don't worry, there's an end. It's certainly natural. Like, we cannot, we cannot argue the fact that, like, people are like, yeah, I want to fucking have a baby. That's the thing I want to do. It's pretty basic. You can talk from somebody from, like, Einstein to Kim Kardashian, and they're all like, yeah, I want to have a baby. Um, but from either side, you can say it's selfish or egotistical, whether to have a baby or not have a baby. But ultimately... Uh, you have to really reflect upon why you're bringing another child into this world and what that means for the earth. And think about Michael Crichton. <laughs> no, don't worry, you just have to go back, think about it. It was like 1991, I think, when it first came out. So bring yourselves back. I think we're all of the age that we can go there, all right? But life, life finds a way. So whether you or I decide to fuck a person and have a baby, like we shouldn't ultimately, is what I'm trying to argue to you. But if babies are meant to be, life will find a way. So don't worry about that. Get an IUD, use a condom. And if a baby was meant to happen, it will happen. Oh yeah! All right, Paul and Emily, come up. I gotta admit, when she said, think of Michael Crichton, I went to coma and about the farming of organs. I don't know why, but that was, I didn't go there. I, I mean, I know that's where she went. I figured that out when the life goes away, but I went to coma. Lily! And this has no bearing, and I don't want you to think that anybody in this room is gonna think this is your personal choice to either have or not have a baby, but you get to decide which of these two debaters uh, wins, whether or not to have the cute, cute babies, or the five-year-old that dies of cancer, but smelled good, which I still haven't figured out the smelled good thing. I've never, I, what the fuck? Himmel, you're gonna have to tell me about the smelled good if it does. Because I don't buy it for a second. It's an endorphin. Is it an endorphin yeah. thing? All right. Lily, who wins? Well, that's your problem, not mine. That is entirely on your shoulders. Who wins? Is it have cute, cute babies or do not have babies because it is ethically and morally fucked up? So the question is, do they still have children? Yes. Or not? 
or have lot or have children all the fucking Emily said everybody in this room should go fucking have babies. No, you guys have had your moment. Emily, Emily, Emily said everybody here should go fucking have babies. Polly said, don't do it. Wear a condom and, and if if life finds a way it does. So Lily you're so conflicted. It's like this decision actually matters. Stay tuned on the on the Apecast. I don't know if you listen to the Literate Apecast, but stay tuned to the Literate Apecast because we're going to be doing the next probably like five years all about his fucking fatherhood. The next, the next one is Katie Katie Burke. Yeah, the next one is basically, and I will have my little microphone on my iPhone right up her cooch going, go, tell us what you're feeling. You know. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. It got crappy outside. Thank you for coming out. If you enjoyed the show, tell people our next bug house is April 2nd, Monday. Thank you very much. Have a great night. Thank you. <laughs>